Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel Podcast. I'm your host, John Benzik, from VentureSuperfly.com, the website that helps you double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you're in a sea of self-doubt. Today's episode is going to be epic, and I mean that almost literally. My special guest today is Taylor Collins. He's the co-founder and chief of Epic Provisions a meat-based superfoods company and the producers of Epic Bar, as well as a growing list of other healthy food items that you can find at your local Whole Foods market and other leading natural food retailers. Prior to starting Epic with his wife and partner, Katie Forrest, Taylor was the co-founder of another energy bar company called Thunderbird Energetica. I'm curious to learn more about how that evolved into Epic. And Taylor's also a prominent endurance athlete, so when he's not working, he can be found trail running or competing as a triathlete, resulting in a few top podium finishes, which is pretty cool. I should also add that my wife Megan has been a colossal Epic Bar fan for a couple of years now, always coming home raving about the new Epic this or that, and that's why I just had to interview Taylor about his amazing company. To learn more about Taylor's story and his company, visit epicbar.com. Taylor Collins, thanks for taking the time. I'm stoked that you're here, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Hey, John. That was an epic intro, and (laughs) thanks for for having me on the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you. So, Taylor, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. We'll talk about how you came up with the idea, who you sell to, the number and types of products, number of employees, the total revenues, things like that. The second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to move them forward. We'll talk more about how you launched your business in some key functions of your business. And the final part is the let's get personal piece where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Taylor, it's time for some questions. Are you ready for the interview? Yeah, let's do this thing. Fantastic. Give me the basics. Taylor, tell us your story. How did you originally discover the Epic Bar idea? It's actually pretty interesting because when Katie and I, well, shortly before Katie and I founded Epic, we were both raw food vegans. And so talk about a pivot in your life. I mean, a full 180 degree turn. We were both endurance athletes training at pretty high levels. My wife was competing in the Ironman World Championship race in Kona. And, um, you know, we just hit this point in time where our, our bodies couldn't quite recover, couldn't quite perform to our goals and aspirations. And so specifically, Katie was having chronic inflammation issues in her joints, a lot of 
gastrointestinal distress. And we saw every, every health practitioner in the town to try to, you know, hack this problem and solve it. People told us she needed a total knee replacement at the age of 20 years old. Other people said she needed to be on chronic um, arthritis medication. She even had an exploratory knee surgery. And it was kind of at this point of desperation where a holistic naturopath doctor said, you know, hey guys, I really want you to consider changing your diet. So pivoting from this vegan raw food lifestyle to starting to reintroduce grass-fed, healthy pastured meats, high-quality fats, cook your vegetables, don't eat them raw. And so we did that, and it was absolutely game-changing. I mean, it was a matter of days that we started feeling just so much difference, so much more exuberant, and our recovery was increasing, performance was increasing. So it was just like no going back. So yeah, at the time, we had a vegan (laughs) raw foods energy bar company, and um, so we knew a little bit about that industry. We had done thousands of demos at natural grocery stores and constantly had consumers saying, hey, guys, here's here's what I want. I want this product that is in a whole food form, so it can't have any protein powders in it. I don't want any added sugars or syrups, um, but it has to be low in carbohydrates. I want it to be high in protein. And we, we would just have to tell people at the time, you know, that, that product doesn't exist. If you want that, Go to the meat counter and and buy some meat, like buy ground beef or a steak or something like that, because that's essentially what you're asking for. And so, you know, there was like many things coming together, changing in our lives. And um, we were getting into meat. We didn't know its limitations because we hadn't cooked with it in years. So it was just kind of a natural thought. Like, why can't meat be in a bar form, like a shelf-stable, super clean protein bar? And so that was the blank slate that launched Epic. And um, it's been a storm ever since. Very interesting. And so when you originally started, who did you first approach in terms of retailers to sell the product to? Yeah, that's actually a pretty good story. So we had a fantastic relationship with Whole Foods uh, Market. And, you know, their mothership headquarters is in Austin, Texas, where we live. And so we went to Whole Foods and we approached a buyer that we had years of relationships with. And this guy was also a hardcore vegan. So that was kind of awkward just telling this dude that we were going to go from a vegan product to a super meat forward product. And um, he said, absolutely do not do this. If you guys move forward with this, I will never take it in my store. Just the idea is disgusting. I don't want to hear any more of this. Just double down on Thunderbird, you know, like focus on the growth with your vegan company. And we had to just really kind of decide, you know, trust our instincts, listen to our heart. Of course, we were devastated at that first pitch. But um, somewhere deep inside of us, we we persevered and we just like focused on launching this product because we, we knew it was going to change the landscape of, of food. Yes, I imagine it must have been such a difficult decision. I've launched a couple of companies in my past and you come to the fork in the road sometimes, especially early out, and to make a decision like that is is sort of gutsy. Yeah, it was um it was pretty scary and you know at the time, I mean we had everything on the line. Katie and I were both into this decision 100%. Um, I was previously a physical therapist and I had decided to let my um, my professional license expire. So taking away all these backup options always, you know, helped us push harder than we ever could have pushed because failure was never an option. But yeah, it was pretty scary. Yeah, very interesting. Sort of like burning the ships. I interviewed a guy a few weeks ago and he told me that when he had launched and throughout his process and his journey that there was no plan B. 
So I love the stories where there are no plan B. Do you still own Thunderbird Energetica? Yeah. So we decided to split ways with Thunderbird. There was a couple of issues. They were both under the same business entity. And so, you know, it was out in the world that Katie and I owned a vegan company and then a meat company. And so there was just a lot of conflicts of interest and um, our core demographics from each product line were completely confused. So we sold Thunderbird to one of our original mentors and one of our original investors. And then we put that money right back into Epic. So it wasn't even, you know, we didn't make a penny off of that, but it helped us fund further epic growth without diluting ourselves and you know get closer towards a more favorable larger valuation and when you first started epic bar how many products did you start with we launched with an original four bars and so we had a bison bar we had a beef bar a turkey bar and then a lamb bar and um that was it. I mean, that was the animal kingdom. It was. We knew we wanted to start there, but we also recognized that we wanted to be a, a larger, more encompassing meat brand versus just a, a protein bar brand. And so it was not very long after that that we started to enter, you know, other categories. And how many products and types of products do you have now? Geez, we probably have over thirty-five different products right now. And um, we're, we compete in, let's see, six different categories and uh, all throughout the grocery store. And uh, a big part of that is through this whole and animal initiative. So it's really uh, a nose to tail concept with eating meat, um, consuming meat, raising meat. And so we really try to honor the animal, utilize as much as we can. So that's led us to creating bone broth products or traditional animal fat cooking oil product lines. Um, we even have some organ meat products. And so, yeah, really trying to do right by those animals and, and honor them in a way that not a lot of other companies, especially consumer packaged good companies do. Very interesting. How many employees did you have when you started out? And how many do you have now? Yeah, when we, when we started Epic, we had, let's see, five employees, including Katie and myself. And, um, we actually started in our house and, um, you know, we, we all shared two computers for five people. And then we, that was, you know, the, the time where we were developing the products, running the products, getting ready for launch. So a lot's changed since then. So three years later, looking, looking into today, we have over 60 employees that are full-time Epic employees and then about 20 part-time employees on top of that. That's tremendous. So in a nutshell, Taylor, what is unique about Epic Bar? There's a lot that's unique with Epic. And for me, one of the things that I'm most proud about is this idea where we're trying to redefine the definition of superfoods. And so we're really, we believe that when animals are raised on pasture, um, they consume diets that they're biologically intended to consume. So ruminants eating grass instead of corn and grain that that's some of the most healthy, nourishing food on the face of the planet. And so it's really having this conversation, this dialogue with consumers, and even taking it one step further than that, and actually kind of showing people that when animals are managed and raised properly, that they can create a net positive return on the environment. They're just fantastic for, for enriching soil health, um, growing really, really prosperous grasslands, which are fantastic for sequestering carbon. So, you know, in general, Epic stands by this, really holistic concept that animals are good for our own nutrition. Animals are very important for the health of our planet. 
things together. Um, it's very disruptive. It's very counter to conventional wisdom, but we're happy to be blazing that trail and, and changing that narrative. Very exciting. Taylor, most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions, and many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they originally expected, thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive. And regarding Epic's uniqueness, that piece that you were just talking about, did your original assumption about the product's uniqueness prove motivating to consumers, or did you discover a slightly different approach after being in business for a while and after getting some customer feedback? Yeah, that's a great question. We, you know, when we started the brand, we were kind of building out these foundational pillars. And so I, I touched on one of them, which was Epic was committed to creating nourishing foods for the end consumer. And we connected that link to we can only have nourishing foods for ourselves if the animals are healthy. And so we kind of built the business around storytelling and marketing those two points of differentiation, but it always felt like we were missing something. And so about a year into the brand, a year into really trying to grasp the essence of what we were doing and really complete this entire nutrient cycle with in consumer, with animal, it dawned on us that that land management piece, and so the health of the land, the health of the soil, the grasses, that's where everything begins because you can't have healthy animals without healthy soil and healthy uh, nutrient-dense forage. And um, so that was a, a, a tremendous realization when we discovered that. I mean, I think, in my opinion, it evolved our brand in just so much deeper of a, of a way in which consumers just absolutely, I, I would say, you know, started looking at us as, as a mission-driven brand that was really about grassland restoration, kind of larger, big, bigger pictures that were, you know, legacy goals that we were chasing. And so... That was a huge evolution for us and um, something that we didn't foresee when we launched, but absolutely, you know, proud about. And that's still what Katie and I get most excited about every day when we wake up. Such a terrific cause and a noble mission. Congratulations on all of that. Thank you. Tell me how. So, Taylor, here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Taylor, let's talk about raising capital. Did you raise money for Epic Provisions when you started? So when we started Epic, we knew that this was going to, like I said, just change the landscape of food. It was a huge idea. Our gut told us that the timing was right. And we also knew that we had to accelerate the growth hard to get ahead of any competition that you know, we were very confident would be following. And so we raised $750,000 to launch the product. And we did it in an interesting way in which we had this vegan brand, Thunderbird, that we had already mentioned. And so we just looped Epic into that entity. And so Thunderbird at the time um, had about a $4 million valuation. And so we raised that $750,000 on a combination of Thunderbird's proven revenue an evaluation from that, but then also the prospective value of what we were creating with Epic. So we already had the concept developed, the packaging developed, the brand developed, flavors, recipes, everything. So it was more or less investing in something that was going to happen that was tangible. And so it was a great way to raise money at a favorable valuation um, and not dilute ourselves with this with this idea that we knew was going to be huge, 
but also we knew that it was going to be really important for us to raise capital so that we could accelerate the growth. That sounds really smart. How did you go about finding investors? Yeah, we've always been very particular about people we partner with as a brand. And um, investment money is, uh, we take that very seriously and we make sure that people are aligned with our values and our mission. And we, we always wanted to partner with people that were passionate about this food revolution. And at the end of the day, they were more making an investment in creating a healthier planet. And so it's not easy to find people like that. Um, our first big investment, so that $750,000 was from an angel investor in Houston, Texas. And this individual had actually wrote us an email from his daughter's swim meet, you know, from his cell phone. It's kind of funny. It's just like, hey, I'm at this swim meet. I'm pretty bored um, here eating a Thunderbird bar. If you ever raise money, you know, I'd love to talk. I'd love to understand and possibly be a part of it. So Katie and I had just finished um, an incubator, kind of a consumer packaged goods brand accelerator in Austin. And so we were just for the very first time starting to pitch and raise money and we were super disheartened by going to these different events and pitching to rooms of like VC um, private equity folks because it just sucked. Like people wanted to know, hey, what's your value or what's your what's your exit strategy? What's your margin? What's your EBITDA? And no one was asking us those deeper questions. And so we were just really frustrated. And you know, as the world just kind of puts everything into the right place at the right time, this individual from Houston reached out and got on the phone with this guy just thinking like, hey, I'm going to practice my pitch and, and kind of refined my messaging with him. And I mean, after five minutes, it was a cosmic connection. I mean, we were speaking the exact same language. Um, I told him about the epic product that we were developing. And when I told him about that, he was like, guys, I'm going to do this whole thing. Like I was, I was just thinking about doing like 100, 150, but epic's going to change the world. Like I want the whole thing for myself. So that was super rare but um, amazing. We absolutely love that guy. And tell me more about him. You don't have to give his name, but was he a an outdoor enthusiast? Was he a person that was in the natural foods industry? Tell me more. Our first angel investor made his money through high-frequency trading. And so he didn't have any experience in natural foods. He didn't have any experience outside of high-frequency trading, but he was a very conscious consumer fed his family very well, really understood the value of nutrition and wellness. He was also super into the paleo lifestyle, um, primal diet. And so there was all these synergies here that we had a lot in common with him. He was into yeah wellness. So, so we both worked out and we bonded over, you know, different types of training plans. Um, and then when we met him, he was just like so radiant and vibrant. And we just connected with him on such a, a deep level to where, you know, it just really felt like it was meant to be. And did you raise more money with some other sources after that along the way? Yep. So that money got us through about a year of super aggressive growth. And so, you know, that that first year of business, we were able to generate about $6 million in revenue, which was just amazing it was it was awesome so we yeah we i mean there's companies out there you know that raise 12 million dollars to 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 sell six million dollars worth of products and we were being so lean and so scrappy and just making everything count and um it's just a really exciting time for the growth of the business so we were able to grow our brand with not very much money 
And then we decided to do another big round because this product, this idea, this epic, you know, line that we had created was on fire and we just, we couldn't keep it on store shelves. And so it made the risk of raising more capital very low. And we also had a very favorable valuation because of like this crazy run rate that we were on and this insane accelerated growth. And so we had raised uh, $3 million after that from a really amazing group in Boulder called Boulder Brands. And um, yeah, again, just fantastic partners. We absolutely love those guys. And uh, that was it. That was all the money we ever had to raise um, before being acquired. Yeah. And keeping in mind that most aspiring entrepreneurs that we're talking to really have no knowledge about how to raise money for their startup. And so I always like to talk about some some stories about the capital raise. And not often does it go really smoothly. There's always some hiccups along the way. Did it go smoothly? And what did you learn most about that experience of raising money? It's not easy. I mean, there, there's a handful of consumer packaged good food companies where that's one individual's entire job, right? Like their job is to raise money year round. So we had a different experience, which I feel very grateful for. One of the, the biggest challenges was before we did our large $3 million round, we didn't have a, a CFO or any kind of finance person on our team. So it was Katie, my wife, doing all of that work, and she hated doing it. It was not something she enjoyed, but it was just out of necessity. And so, um, you know, it was really hard raising money without understanding our finances and, and feeling absolutely confident about how much we needed to to raise and, and what that what a run rate looked like. And so the day that we had, so, so we hired a CFO contingent on closing that $3 million round. And the day the CFO came on board, he said, you guys are going to run out of money in five days. And we, it was not even on our radar. And so we, we weren't going to close that round for another three weeks. And um, we had to get completely scrappy and borrow a lot of money just to get through those next couple weeks. But, um, but yeah, having someone on the team that's just devoted, dedicated to your finances, um, a, a champion of that and can answer information extremely confidently is huge because we'd be on these phone calls with <laughs> like in, investors and they would be asking us questions. And that was for sure the most uncomfortable and out of place I've ever felt in my life. And I just remember like Katie and I having the phone on mute and being like, not it. I am not answering that one. And Katie would be like, no, I'm not answering that one. I have no idea what they're even saying. And so it was like always back and forth, like, and, and then eventually I usually had to answer it and say something completely stupid or just admit that I had no idea what they were talking about. So that would be the biggest lesson and, and certainly something that companies raising money need to be super tight on. Yeah, that's super helpful to hear. Let's switch gears and talk about finding a manufacturer. How did you go about manufacturing your Epic Bars at the beginning? Yeah, so the Epic Bars were really unique because... It was combining two completely different technologies that had never really been incorporated together. So it was, we needed someone with a lot of meat skill set, um, especially like shelf-stable meat. And then we also had to have kind of this hybrid plant built out that was basically an energy bar production facility. But it had to be USDA certified. Um, so there had to be a federal inspector on site 24 hours a day because it's raw meat. And um, it was really unique. So that didn't exist. It wasn't necessarily like a plug and play, go out, call this list of co-packers who are already doing it. 
But instead, we called co-packers and just pitched this concept and this idea. And um, we really relied on a partnership early on to where it was someone who was willing to take a risk with us to kind of see our larger vision, but also willing to learn to kind of like push their own comfort zone. So it was a it was a unique model where we invested in a lot of the proprietary equipment that, you know, these meat manufacturers would never have owned in their life. It didn't make any sense. And then we used obviously like the smokehouses, the ovens, the grinders, the blenders, mixing bowls from all these facilities. So it's pretty unique unique model, but we made capital investments to get us off the ground with packaging equipment and then uh, you know, the equipment that actually formed the bars and um and shared that cost. A lot of companies when they start out and start working with a manufacturer have issues and it's just sort of the nature of the business in finding a manufacturer as they go along. Were there any problems or issues that you faced and how did you overcome them? Yeah, absolutely. So in our industry, you know, unbeknownst to us, meat people, so people who, you know, traditionally make a living in meat, whether it's a rancher, uh, a manufacturer, a co-packer, they just do not sign contracts. It's just not in their genetics. It's not, it's never, it's never been in the DNA of that industry. And so we operated for over two years with a handshake agreement, which totally sucked. And we hated it because, you know, we didn't have specs, manufacturing specs in place. We didn't necessarily have like the intellectual property clearly defined who owned the process, who owned the recipe. So it was really uncomfortable, but there was nothing that we could do to convince and incentivize these manufacturers to sign contracts. We even offered them cash bonuses, um, said, hey, if you sign this contract, it's very favorable. You know, We will give you $100,000 if there's ever an exit. And we just couldn't get anyone to sign it. People only wanted a handshake agreement. So that was super frustrating. That's so interesting. And do you have any key pieces of advice and how you can find the right manufacturer for your product. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I um, historically, I've been the one who've gone out and discovered um, and found and formed these partnerships with our co-packers. And the most important thing that I've found is that you have to get out to the plants early on, and you have to meet the people. You have to meet um, the chief operator, the owner, the people on the plant floor to have them bu- truly buy into your vision because I can tell you that co-packers, you know, depending on what they manufacture, they probably get 10 to 20 new business pitches a week. Companies, very small startup companies saying, hey, I want to make this product. Would you guys consider making it? And when you're able to meet with them face-to-face, add that human element behind the brand, get them excited, sell them on your enthusiasm, I mean, that's always been absolutely next level for us. So, you know, all of our co-packers have just been really, really great relationships. And, um, and they, they, they organically formed that way too. We didn't force it, but these were people that we actually enjoyed um, doing business with, enjoyed them on a personal level. So I think that's the most important thing is, you know, make your preliminary intro phone call, even seeing if it's viable or these co-packers have line time and then go out there, book a plane and, plane ticket, visit them, and then sell them on your vision. Super cool. Let's shift gears and talk about selling your product to retailers. 
You mentioned early on that you approached one of your colleagues at Whole Foods who was a buyer of your previous product and you had some uh, sort of challenges there. But after that, where did you go to first sell the product? And if Whole Foods took it in at some point, why did they finally take it in? So we decided to launch Epic at the largest natural products food show in the in the world. And it happens in Anaheim, California every March. It's called Expo West. And um, we, we showed up to that event completely flying under the radar. I mean, we hadn't shared the product with anyone else. We actually came to the show with fake products. So we had mocked up packaging, um, samples that we had that were certainly not shelf stable. But we just showed up to this event full of confidence. We had a really amazing booth. Our branding was spot on. I mean, it was so different from everything else at the show. And um, it was literally within you know the first six hours of that day one of the show, we had a national account signed with Whole Foods, a national launch signed with them. Um, the two largest distributors in the country had picked up the product line. I mean, it was on fire. We'd even, we were even awarded best new brand of, God, whatever year that was, 2013 or 2014. And so, um, so yeah, it was cool. It was like flying under the radar and then just showing up and having so much presence, um, even though we were faking half of it. Sure. Um, it was really just like the idea to put ourselves out there and to see what the market, how they would respond. And so obviously they respond overwhelmingly and we promised, told people, you know, yes to everything. And so after that show, we had to work to back up those promises. Yeah. And I've done trade shows before where half of it's faked as well. When I started my own snowboard and ski clothing brand, I showed up at the big retail show and we set up our booth and I didn't even know how to write an order, but of course I faked it <laughs> until I made it. And, and my product arrived like a week before uh, and I had to open the box and make sure everything was right. But did you have meetings scheduled at that Expo West trade show? I've, I've been to that show. We were considering, in another business I launched, we were considering launching our product at that show. But did you have meetings scheduled? A lot of times you want to set up you know, five, 10 meetings a day to maximize your time? Or did you just show up and open the doors and say, here we are? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We opened up <laughs> very similar to your story and, and said, here we are. I mean, I don't even think we had the knowledge to, you know, schedule meetings ahead of time. We, you know, it was still Katie and myself that were doing almost everything with the business. And so we were technically, you know, the head of sales at the time. And um, there was just so much overwhelming work that we, I, I don't think we necessarily optimized our ability to connect with buyers there, but everything worked out very well in our favor just because the product was so different than everything else on the show floor and, and the timing was you know, perfect for what we were doing um, with how people started to change their own diets. And so, yeah, it was really just kind of opened up and said, who wants to buy this? <laughs> yeah. So going into that show, what were your expectations on a scale of one to 10 in terms of the orders that you would get? 10 being amazing, huge amount of orders. And then as a result of being at the show, what did it end up being one through 10? I'm wondering how much you were surprised at the success at that show. Yep. So before the show, I expected a pretty successful launch, something that we would have felt really good about. And so I would have said, you know, maybe a, a five and we would have been fist pumping and high fiving. But, you know, I, I specifically remember 
waking up Monday morning, so three days after the show, waking up in this one-bedroom Airbnb with, like, four people sleeping there and just, like, telling Katie, like, we're going to make it. This thing is going to be huge. There's not a trace of doubt in my mind that this isn't going to, like, change our lives, change the future projection of, you know, like, our path in this world. And um, so to answer you, I mean, the the end result was, like, beyond a 10 it was like a a hundred like it it was as if we had already succeeded even though there was so much work that we needed to to do how exciting and so at that point even when you were at the trade show you already knew how to work with distributors and brokers and so on am i right because of your previous business that must have been helpful yep it was certainly helpful and um you know anything that we didn't know how to do we just kind of nodded our heads and said like oh yeah absolutely you want that for sure we'll 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 get that to you and and we'd make notes like we have to figure out what an edlp is and all this language we didn't understand and And so much different (laughs) language wasn't it all the terminology and the the abbreviations absolutely i mean yeah it's it's it was for sure uncomfortable at times but we you know, we, we didn't want people to um, to perceive us as this new startup that that was um, like so fresh they couldn't figure out what what they were doing, and maybe that would be more risky for businesses to take a bet on us. So we just, like you said, you know, just fake it because just selling people on passion and and really ourselves um, that was the key. Yeah, and it's so interesting. This really belongs in the let's get personal part of the the interview, which we'll get to in a little bit. But you know, we all say fake it till you make it. And there's really, it's kind of fun to say that. But there's really something that's not at all fake about it in terms of your drive, your interest, your belief in the idea. Sort of the high level strategic stuff is not faking at all, is it? It's just, you know, the, the tactical things about how to prepare a program for a certain retailer in Arizona. And you know you can get there. And so at the high level and the passion and the legacy and the values, that stuff is clearly not faked. But I think that holds people back is they think, well, I don't know 60% of this stuff. Well, they know 40% of something that's motivating them. So if you lean into that, that can certainly get you somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, for me, I almost, um, now that Katie and I are starting to invest in other brands, like I, I look for people who are similar to our story where they don't have tons of industry experience. They don't have a, a set idea on this is how you scale. This is how you reproduce success. But I, I love the people who you know, you're more investing in that passion and, and that work ethic. And and so I, I couldn't agree with you more there. And it's such a discerning situation, too, because I sit in, in business planning competitions and pitches and all sorts of things. And but I think it's it's always difficult to sort of know who to pour that money into. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I feel like Katie and I's athletic background has always made us super competitive and we just refuse to fail. And so I think finding that that competitive spirit in someone um, is rare, but also I, I love just, you know, I, I think the position that we were in in our lives where we were we were all in. I mean, we uh, we were a couple, you know, like our our future, our financial stability depended on the success of this. And so, you know, even though that's uh, not the greatest position to be in in your life, like when an investor sees that you're fully committed, like 
failing is not an option, um, I, I think that reduces a lot of risk um, for that decision to, to invest money. Yeah. Let's shift gears and talk about creating awareness and demand. Taylor, as you know, most startups have very small marketing budgets. How did you create consumer awareness and demand for the product when you launched the company? Yep. Um, so we had to be incredibly scrappy, and we still are with our, our marketing dollars. I don't think there's a company that's experienced as much growth as we have with with probably fewer marketing dollars. But one of our very early on strategies that was just amazing was this idea where we reached out to influencers. And so this is authors, bloggers, athletes, researchers, anyone that has influence and was kind of philosophically in line with our with our values and mission, um, we sent them out early VIP um, kits. And so this was, you know, the first week the product was available. The, these were the first shipments that we put out in the world. And there was about 50 of them. And so I just remember the day that we launched the website, um, I was in charge of the social media and I just um, had like notifications on my phone whenever someone bought a product or whenever someone like tweeted or shared a picture of what we had sent out. And I mean, there was like a crazy correlation to, holy moly, like this person with 200,000 followers just posted a picture of Epic and said, check out this new brand in Austin, Texas. And then literally I would, you know, every 30 seconds get an order through our online shop for, you know, the next 24 hours. And, um, that was, that was incredible to see that like first initial public, you know, authentic validation. And then just know that like that was the calm before the storm and we were going to be just filling crazy amounts of orders. And that was, you know, we didn't even pay for that. It was just sending product and uh, a really nice handwritten note. Let's get personal. So Taylor, let's get personal on a few topics. It seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business, but they never start one. It's all show and no go. But starting a business is special. What motivates a person like you, Taylor Collins, to stop just talking about launching a business and then go out and actually start a business like Epic Provisions. I mean, seriously, this is, you have got this great story and you started that first company and then you started this company. I mean, really, what motivates you to go out and do something you've never done before and launch the thing? You know, I, I believe that that's how Katie and I have always been hardwired. We have this this battle cry that we've been saying for years, which is charge into the storm. And it's truly interesting. Like bison are some of the only animals that when there's a, a storm or some kind of threat on the horizon, they will actually run directly into it in order to break through it and be like within that window of danger uh, for a shorter amount of time. And so we really embrace that idea with everything we do in life. And and certainly, you know, I, I, I get frustrated with People who, you know, it seems like everyone has an idea or a dream or a vision for a company at some point in their life, but just no one executes. Um, and I think you have to remind yourself that, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And so for Katie and I, we realized like we didn't have kids yet and we didn't own a house and we shared a car. So, I mean, if we failed, we'd pick ourselves back up and do something else and it wouldn't be a big deal. Um, but really it's just being afraid or 
not being afraid to fail because it's okay. Like you learn a lot from that and you can pivot from that and create, you know, really great solutions that you never envisioned. But what do you think influenced you on having that philosophy or set of values or point of view? It must have came from somewhere. I think I could I could say that, you know, since since we were so into competitive racing that a lot of the events that we we train for and and you you're training your body but you're also training your mind you you rely exclusively on yourself so we weren't necessarily doing team sports we had played team sports earlier in life but you know for the last 10 years we were doing activities where you had to be centered within yourself within your mind and within your body to really succeed and so that independence you know not having uh, a scapegoat, but really being responsible for your success or your failure exclusively. And again, both of us just, it's in our genetics to be competitive and to want to win at everything we do. I think we learned a lot about pushing ourselves, grinding it out, you know, finishing what we started, not making excuses. And, and there's always been something about that challenge that's been enticing, whether it's, you know, doing a, a marathon or an Ironman or starting a business. I think the greatest things in life come from those moments where you're really digging deep and pushing yourself and challenging yourself. What has it been like to launch a business with your wife, a significant other like that? And do you have any key pieces of advice for people that might be in a similar situation where they're considering going in as a couple? Overall, I love it. I think it was a great thing because we were both able to share um, emotions and stories in real time, and it didn't matter. Like we could talk about what we were nervous about, or afraid about, or excited about with the business. You know, first thing in the morning, or the last thing before we go to bed. And so we were really tuned into each other's energy and really supportive of each other in that capacity. Very understanding of the emotions that both of us were going through, but at the same time. There's a very fine line to when that's when that's turned on, when you're allowed to have those conversations, and then when you're allowed to, you know, just remember that you guys are are lovers first and foremost, and the business is something we created together. But what was you know most important was our relationship and and doing you know trying not to form a you know an not have our primary relationship be business, but continuing that that relationship that we had many years before that was founded on love and admiration of each other. And so, yeah, I mean, before every presentation I've ever done, and even still today, you know, when Katie and I are presenting together, I always just introduce her first and foremost as my my wife and my lover, because that's how we uh, how we first met. But that's it's it's hard to um, it's hard to remember that sometimes when you get so into your business. And what has been your biggest joy of being an entrepreneur? I'd say my my biggest joy of being an entrepreneur is creating a lifestyle that works for myself. And so being holding myself accountable, not being on someone else's schedule. Um, Katie and I both, we always love being our own bosses. And, um, you know, we, we both love historically making decisions and not and not getting caught up in over evaluating things you know group think which corporations suck at but like over analyzing things calling in more consultants like i just always love saying you know like instinctively my gut's telling us that we need to go in this direction so that's what we're going to do and like rallying everyone to get on board 
And I think when you are the boss, that's a really unique position to be in. It's really uh, have your vision, cast your vision, and then just like have a, a group of just uh, bees, like a beehive, just there to support you and execute. And um, that's always been my favorite part about being an entrepreneur. So Taylor, then what has been your biggest frustration along your entrepreneurial journey? I'll say, you know, the most challenging thing for us has always been since we're a meat brand, we've been subject to federal regulation as far as what we can say and what we can do and how we make our products. And I mean, there is a federal employee at our production plant every single time we're running machines and packaging things. And so um, we have had to go through just tons of bureaucratic systems. I mean, it's silly. It takes like takes maybe three or four months to get our packaging um, approved by someone in Washington, D.C. in order to sell it on store shelves. And people don't really realize that, but when you're dealing with meat, um, everything has to be approved. And so it's really frustrating, you know, the, the timeliness uh, or the lack of timeliness in that system, but even more so, the system's very old. Um, it doesn't allow companies that are disruptive and mission-driven to talk about the positive effects of grass-fed animals, of putting animals on pasture. You're not allowed to talk about health on packages. You're not allowed allowed to talk about um, the environment. So you're essentially not allowed to say anything that can give you a competitive advantage um, over you know just your standard preservative-laden meat company that's out there. Um, so yeah, we've we've gone you know head to head with those guys push them, challenge them. Um, but it's just been so much resistance that, you know, it's, it's for sure unnecessary. Yeah, that's so interesting. I would, ne- would have never thought about that. Taylor, there are many entrepreneurs, even seasoned ones, that experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and how have you dealt with it? You know, the self-doubt, absolutely. Um, I've, we've, I, I had a lot of self-doubt when we were doing the Thunderbird product line. Um, you know, I just, I just didn't feel like it was going to win in the way that we wanted it to win. Um, and the product wasn't differentiated enough. And it was just always, there was so much resistance um, to getting consumers to try it, to communicating why it was better and different than what was currently available. And um, eventually we, we just had to pivot and, um, I don't know. I think it was trusting, trusting ourselves, trusting our instinct, listening to our hearts there. And just knowing that, you know, there's going to be a point in time where you, you, you have to listen to that stuff because with Epic, you know, we haven't had a lot of that self doubt and it's been a very different experience where everything that we do feels right. And we've since day one had just complete confidence that the path and the trajectory we were on was the right one. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's value in that. Do you think starting your own business or businesses has changed you as a person? Um, yeah, starting our own business has for sure changed me as a person, and um, it's made me a, a better leader. I've I've always been a little bit more introverted by nature, but it's forced me to to be inspiring and to um, you know build a team and and have people you know, love what they do. And so that's certainly been something that's, that put me out of my comfort zone, but also it's like really important because 
those are just skills that good people have. And so I think it was really easy for me to just close off and kind of um, operate in my own little world before starting a business. But, you know, you can't succeed in business if you're not just like a, a good storyteller, like developing a brand, communicating effectively, inspiring people. And what have you learned most about yourself since you've launched Epic? I'd say what I've learned most about myself is to trust my instinct and to listen to my gut. And I really believe that, you know, business is, it's like an extension of your family. It's almost, I can say this now because we have a kid, but it's, it's almost like a child because they're your creation. Um, you hold it near and dear to your heart and, um, you know, like your child, you, there's no like one way to raise a successful, healthy child, but you have to like listen to yourself. You have to trust yourself. Um, it's an extension of your, uh, of, you know, your own life and beliefs. And so really learning about that is just, uh, you know, given Katie and I so much confidence that it just feels like anything that we get behind in life, um, is going to be successful. Who has been most influential to you in your life, either professionally or personally? Um, you know, our very first angel investor, um, he's been for sure the most influential person in my life. And, um, certainly Katie and I could, could never express how much gratitude we have in him believing in us early on when we, that was before we learned how to believe in ourselves. And so his vote of confidence, I mean, it, it changed our outlook on ourselves and, it it just really changed the trajectory of our life and led to so many amazing experiences that we've shared together and um, yeah just learned so much from him I mean we used to talk on the phone three or four times a week just throwing out ideas uh, about business about you know food about life about just general philosophy and yeah he's been I mean I'm really grateful to know him since you partnered with General Mills, what has that experience been like? That must really have been transformative in certain ways, or is it sort of business as usual? It's been really, it's been a, it's been a crazy journey. I mean, we, we still operate Epic very independently, very autonomously out of Austin, Texas. General Mills is there for us um, when we need them, but they're also very considerate about overstepping their boundaries. And the acquisition, you know, we've said this from day one, but it's never been about General Mills changing Epic, but rather Epic inspiring change at General Mills. And so we see this as just this really exciting opportunity in the world where uh, a big food business is investing in a disruptive, small mission-driven brand. And um, I think we're doing a great job collectively, like tag teaming our resources and doing tremendous things, accelerating our impact, accelerating our, our, our growth. And, you know, when we can accelerate our, our growth, we're doing really great things for supply chains, for the land, for consumers. And uh, so it's a really unique system that, um, you know, there's a lot of mutual trust in it, but they've been amazing partners and we've we've dominated this first year. And so um, really, really proud about you know, the decision we made to um, sell the, the company to them. Finally, Taylor, did I miss any questions that you feel you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? 
I think one thing that's very important to our business and general belief in life is really understanding the truest value of business. And for us, it's never been about financial returns and EBITDA and margins and exit strategy, but but rather it's how do we create an ecosystem in which we can create positive returns on the land, on the animals that we use in our products, on the end consumers, and do all that while creating a net return to our shareholders. And so I think when you can do all of those things together, I mean, that's the truest value of business. It's it's perfect, it's, it's infallible, and it can change the world. And it's really important when you're trying to differentiate yourself um, as a brand to stand for something that's that's bigger than than yourself bigger than your own you know i don't know how to say i I guess you want to really have something that's a legacy vision that's going to change the world and um you know big companies like general mills they spot that and something you know they can reverse engineer your product um, but they can never reverse engineer your your story um and your values and your brand and so you know really tighten up that stuff be authentic and um you'll be rewarded in this life and the next oh my gosh taylor you've been fantastic offering some great stories and advice to our entrepreneur listeners congratulations on your success for your entrepreneurial courage and for sharing your experiences with us today cool thanks for having me john and happy to be here Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.